Meet the first woman ever to lead the Wildlife Conservation Society as it fights to protect New York shores and wildlife amid the climate crisis. Then it's that special time of the year when the sun and the city intersect to form an out-of-this-world show. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson breaks down the phenomenon he first dubbed Manhattan Henge as Metrofocus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin, Dr. P. Roy Vagelos and Diana T. Vagelos, Estate of Worthington Mayo Smith. Welcome to Metrofocus. I'm Jack Ford. The Wildlife Conservation Society, the organization in charge of overseeing New York City zoos and aquariums, as well as research projects around the world, has a new president. And for the first time, the president is a woman. Monica Medina is bringing her years of experience working on environmental policy for the federal government to New York, where she will be leading the charge to protect our oceans, coastlines, and air, as well as ensuring that the city's zoos continue to be a valuable educational resource to the over 3.5 million visitors they get each year. And joining us now as part of our Peril and Promise special reporting is Monica Medina. Prior to becoming the new president and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Society, Monica served as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs and as a special envoy for global biodiversity. So, Monica, welcome to Metrofocus. It's a delight to have you here and congratulations on your new position. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you for having me here today. And thank you for talking about all the work we do here in New York and all around the world. We're thrilled to do that and thrilled to tell your audience all about it. And I'm thrilled to be in this organization at this moment. Yeah, and, and it's an important moment. And I want to get into some of those issues and some of the projects you're involved with. But let me ask you about the idea of, of your thoughts about being the first woman to run this organization. Well, I really... Uh, I'm so grateful to the board for giving me this opportunity to be the first woman. We have had a woman chair of our board, which is wonderful, but it is, I think, a sign that women are stepping up into roles that they hadn't taken before more and more and more. And particularly in the environmental area, women and children are often the ones who are most affected by environmental problems, by climate change, by biodiversity loss. Women spend I don't know, it's billions of hours every year hauling water because they can't, uh, they don't they don't have it nearby. And so they lose the opportunity to be educated or to have uh, time to take care of their families just because of the environmental issues that they confront on a daily basis. So it's great for me to be here helping to lead an organization that's trying to solve those problems. You mentioned some of, of the problems. Give us a, a, a working list, if you will, uh, of what you're seeing, what the organization is seeing as the major conservation issues that the world is confronting, and even that we're confronting here in New York. 
Yes, of course. Well, you know, everyone's heard about climate change. And here in New York, we all experienced it firsthand with that smoke from fires thousands of miles away, impacting our health and sending us indoors at a time when we should be enjoying the outdoors. But on top of that, we are losing biodiversity at an alarming rate. And we have, as a world, come together last December to set an ambitious target on that as well, which is to conserve or protect 30% of the planet. That's a lot. 30% of the planet by 2030. And if we do that, we will not only protect our health, not only you know make our lives more wonderful and enjoyable from being in the environment, but we will also benefit our economies because they are built in large part on a healthy, clean environment. And so that's a huge one that the world has taken on. We've also uh, taken on the plastic pollution challenge, which is very much uh, on people's minds today as our lives are sort of dominated by plastic items that we don't always need for single uses. And so there's a huge amount of plastic pollution out in the environment. And it's in us now. It's gotten into our bloodstreams because of its impact in the natural world. It's become part of the food chain. There's a huge amount of concern about that. And the world has come together and decided to negotiate a global agreement on ending plastic pollution, hopefully by 2040. So those are two enormous other challenges that we're taking on right now. And let's talk a little bit about the organization and what it's doing. And then I want to ask you some specific projects that you're working on. So I mentioned in the introduction, certainly locally involved here in New York, and I talked about the, the zoos and the aquarium, uh, but also around the world, as you mentioned, give us a a sense, if you will, of some of the geographic areas where the organization is working right now? Well, of course, here in New York, we love, and one of the things I loved the most about starting this job was the sound of school children enjoying our parks here in New York. I went to the aquarium. I've been all over the Bronx Zoo, the Central Park Zoo, other two zoos and the other two boroughs, they're wonderful. The Queens and Prospect Park zoos are fantastic places for us to spark that love of the natural world that you don't have to be a biologist or become a marine ecologist or, you know, you don't have to become, you don't have to do this for a living in order to love the environment and take actions in your daily life. And if we teach young people here today about the important things they can do to conserve the environment. That's a huge mission. But yeah. on top of that, here we are in this enormous power center where we can garner the best of what we have to offer here in the U.S. to help countries all over the world conserve their environments. And as we know from the pandemic, we are very closely related to each other on this planet. You know, it's a smaller and smaller world when a pandemic can start somewhere thousand, halfway around the world. And in fact, everyone on the planet. And that's because we are too, we are not really respecting the boundaries we need and protecting enough nature so that wild animals can stay where they are and won't uh, impact us with their um, uh, viruses. And you know, we've seen it more and more, whether it's bird flu or Ebola. And now that, you know, the COVID pandemic, we know that the work we do on health couldn't be more important. And 
it dovetails well with the work we're doing for biodiversity and for climate. If we conserve the right places around the world, we can prevent these the pandemics that have, have been so harmful to us. We can conserve enough biodiversity to give ourselves a clean, healthy planet for future generations, and we can help solve the climate crisis. Right. And, and just as, a, as an aside, I think you, you mentioned before the that the smoke situation we had, which is a very graphic and dramatic illustration of the fact that we are all indeed interconnected. Yes. Um, around the globe, but that's important. Let's talk about some local projects, if I can. Um, and give us a sense of what you're doing. The Hudson Canyon project. First of all, what's the Hudson Canyon all about, and why? What are you doing to protect it? Well, it is an incredible place, a hundred miles off our coastline here, but you know, so directly tied to the New York City area. Back before the ice melted, we had. Hudson River then went all the way out that hundred miles and to the shelf break where the water drops off and is very, very deep. And that's one of the most rich areas in the ocean because that's where all the nutrients build up and they come flying up off that shelf, off that canyon surface. It's seven Empire State Buildings deep yeah. and seven miles wide. And it's full of incredible biodiversity, sharks and whales and all kinds of amazing corals, deep water corals. People think of corals as being tropical, but they're also in deep water. So it's one of the richest areas and we haven't protected nearly enough of our Atlantic seascape. So it's wonderful here in the New York area to be promoting and hopefully the federal government will provide protection, permanent protection for this area off the New York seascape. And we can then you know, conserve it for future generations. It's, oh, wait, it's, let me jump, let me jump in for one second, Monica, because I, I'm so fascinated by that. And again, I, you and I were talking about this before. I grew up on the ocean, you know, as yeah. a kid. I worked as a lifeguard. I, you know, I, I live near the ocean now. We've always been concerned about the quality of the ocean and certainly the air. But I suspect somebody might be watching this and say, well, that sounds really interesting, Hudson Canyon, but that's 100 miles off the coast. What impact could that possibly have on me? Why should I be worried about it? What's the answer to that question? The answer to that is that we like like we care about having the Grand Canyon pre preserved and protected for future generations as a legacy and also as an important way that we conserve our environment, keep our air clean, our water clean. We need healthy oceans. The ocean provides every other breath we take as human beings and a ton of food for people all up and down this coastline. And so if we conserve these areas, especially as the ocean gets warmer and scientists will tell you the Atlantic ocean right now is warmer than it's been in, in its recent memory and scientific uh, um, since scientists have been taking measurements, it's, it's a really important thing for us to conserve places so that, as they are stressed, the ocean around it is stressed. There are places that can rebound and those fish spill out. You know, when yeah. you have a place like that, that's so fertile, the fish spill out and it really helps to conserve um, important uh, parts of our uh, of our uh, to tourism economy and our fisheries and coastal economies. Yeah. So. For us to recognize that, again, this comes back to your point before, we are all interconnected. Yes. All of this is important here. I've got about two minutes left, and, and there's so much we could talk about, and hopefully we're going to continue this conversation sometime. But let me come back. I think it's a good place to wrap this up. Let me come back to something you mentioned briefly before, and that is 
what can we do as individuals? You know, we have the organization here. We have the federal government hopefully jumping in. But what can each of us do to help in terms of, of preserving and protecting the art, our, our environment for the rest of our lives and for the lives of, of those that will come behind us? I think, you know, the broad answer is think for future generations. Think about your actions and how they will impact your children and your grandchildren. That's what motivates me. So being able to um, look for sustainably produced products, whether it's fish that come from the ocean and is sustainably caught, or whether it's looking to cut down the amount of plastic in your life by going to the store and instead of buying detergent in a big plastic jug, look for it in a paper carton and then recycle that carton. I think we all need to demand a more uh, a more uh, responsive recycling and uh, circular economy all the time. If we're thinking about, particularly as we build this new economy around uh, around renewable energy, when we think about those batteries, we need to be as consumers asking for companies to take those back from our cell phones, from our new cars and use them again so that we don't have to constantly go back and dig up the the you know minerals that it takes that's a very dirty process think about how when we purchase things at the grocery store we look for local products so they haven't been uh, shipped as far or we look for sustainable farmers who are using uh, fewer pesticides and uh, fewer uh, chemicals to stimulate the growth. So there's lots of things that we can do from buying cage-free eggs to buying things in paper cartons to using plastic ba carry bags that you can right. use over and over again. Right. And well, it, it's, everyone can make a difference. You're right. That's the important thing is that you can small, small gestures, small efforts can make a very big difference. And speaking of making a big difference, the Wildlife Conservation Society just does such wonderful work, has done in the past and continues to do so. And we're fortunate to have them and they are fortunate to have you, Monica Medina, you. as their new president. Monica, uh, again, congratulations. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. And we'll talk with you some more down the road as you continue this quest. Thanks so much. Good luck. And you be well. Thank you, Jack. Thanks so much for having me today. Twice each summer, the sun, earth, and monuments of human industry create something of a spectacle here in our city. Dubbed Manhattan Henge after the famous Stonehenge monuments in Britain, it's a phenomenon that aligns the sunset with the city streets. So what's the science behind this phenomenon and what's the best way for New Yorkers to see it? Joining me now to talk about Manhattan Henge is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil, since I have you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me talk to you about... You can call me more often, you know. I just work up the street. <laughs> yeah, oh, good, You're right good. down here on Broadway. Because I got so many questions I don't yeah, have time for. You don't for. call, you know, right, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but since I have you here, let me talk to you about Manhattan Hedge. Yeah. Explain the phenomenon. What is it? How does it happen? Okay, so let me just say, I didn't invent the fact that the sun does this. <laughs> But I called it to people's attention who never really paused to think about it. Okay, so as we all know, as New Yorkers, Manhattan is laid out on a grid. It's a rectilinear grid. So uh, except for Broadway, which cuts through it all, ramshackle, right, okay? Right, right. Uh, all blocks are these rectangles, okay? And so the east-west streets, most of which cut completely through the island, except for uh, Central Park, but they pick up on the other side. And the other occasional blockages, but basically there's some famous cross streets that go river to river. 
That would include 34th Street, I think 36th Street, 42nd Street, 57th Street, but not 59th Street because Time Warner Center is in the way. Mm -hmm. right? You got to sort of think this through. All right. So you can ask the question, is there a day of the year where the sun sets precisely on the grid? And when that happens, both sides of the street are illuminated by sunlight. And you have this highly anticipated timed moment where the sun, because the sun comes in at an angle, okay? It only comes straight in uh, in the tropics, but at our latitude, it'll always set at an angle. So it comes, then it, it appears from behind the buildings on the left, and then it shows up between the, the in this canyon, steel and glass canyon, that is, that defines the look and feel of this city, and bam, the sun sets right there. And I, so I calculated what days those would be. I published them in like 1996, but no one paid attention because I just said what it would be, but yeah. it was. So I said, right, let me just settle this one for once and for all. I took the first photo of this. It's, it's Manhattan Henge. And, and I called it Manhattan Henge because I, when I was a kid, I went to Stonehenge. Yeah. You, you, you remember Stonehenge, the, the sun sets over one of the, what's the heel stone that's lined up with these other uh, monuments. And so the, the ancient people, th this mattered. It was the first day of summer. So I said, wow, so you can line stuff up with the sky. So you have a little bit of culture interposed with the universe. And I said, let me bring that to New York. So there are two days. One day tends to happen around Memorial Day. The other one happens near uh, baseball's all-star break, if you must know. <laughs> <laughs> and on those two times, the sun sets exactly on the Manhattan grid. Mm -hmm. And I took a photo, uh, published it in early 2002, and it was like a slow burn, but now thousands of people flood the streets for this. Because right. we pub we we put out a press release from, I mean, almost, from the American Museum in the Museum middle of the streets. It's middle of the street. Chaos. And I heard <laughs> someone say, why are you blocking traffic for this? I said, excuse me, excuse me, your traffic gets blocked your traffic gets blocked for Trump, for for <laughs> Con Ed, for police activity, at least allow two days a year where it is blocked for the universe itself. So the reason why it works is we have a clean horizon to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. There's no, the, the, the roads don't curve. It crosses the Hudson to New Jersey. We have a clean sunset line. Just remember, if you're going to do this, leave your zoom lens at home. It's not about the zoom. You want to go as far east as possible yeah. so that you can look completely across the width of Manhattan, almost to a vanishing point. Uh -huh. And on these days, we've calculated it is an exact lineup. So what you have is the burst of the sun at the end of that vanishing point, framed by the steel and metal canyons of our tall buildings. Uh -huh. Are there multiple streets, multiple avenues where they can get that kind of view? Yeah, I mean, the, the best streets are 34. You want nice buildings in your shot. The best places are 34th Street and 42nd. 34th, of course, you get the Empire State Building. Right. 42nd, if you're far enough east, you mm -hmm. get um, the Chrysler Building. Right. And it's not lit up yet because it's still daytime, but yeah. it's still beautiful in the shot. And other streets, it still works, and it still works beautifully. Yeah. 57th Street, the buildings are not as interesting, but it's another double-wide um, cross street. Uh, it also works on 14th Street. And last I checked, 
unless something got built, you know, yeah. you never know these days. Well, Neil, yeah. listen, I don't know anybody who's more excited about what they do than you are, and it's so well, it's contagious. Hard. And by the way, my first night sky, because ain't nobody looking at the night sky here in New York, was the Hayden Planetarium as a kid, and now it's, an, it's a privilege and an honor to be the director of that facility. Right. And I see kids coming in, I just hope I I'm doing for them what educators and scientists had done for me when I walked in there starry-eyed. Oh, at the very That's least, a it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to have you here with us. Thanks, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks so much. Filmmaker Manfred Kirschheimer has been documenting New York City in his inimitable way for over half a century. The 88-year-old documentarian and former film professor has loved New York ever since he and his family came here in 1936 to escape Nazi Germany. And his documentaries are a visual tribute to the landscape, the people, and the rhythms of his adopted city. For his newest film, Free Time, which had its world premiere at the New York Film Festival here at Lincoln Center, the acclaimed filmmaker turned to a trove of 16-millimeter black and white footage he and a colleague shot 60 years ago. Like many of his previous films, Free Time is a meditation on city life set to the sounds of jazz and classical music, this time capturing the metropolis during a seemingly gentler time gone by. Here's a preview. to talk about free time and about his life and career is filmmaker Manfred Kirschheimer. Manny, welcome to the program. It's such Hi, an honor to have Raphael. you here with us. Thank you, Raphael. So, so, Manny, as I said, you shot this film 60 years ago. First of all, uh, why did you shoot this film? What was your initial intention with it? Well, Walter Hess, who was my partner at the time, and I uh, were shooting a large scripted film called Dream of a City. And um, its main theme had to do with the way the glass boxes were taking over the city, mm -hmm. the downtown, midtown part of it. The big glass skyscrapers. Yeah, 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 well, I call them boxes, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I, we deplored it. And, and it had uh, scenes of the wrecking of the older buildings uh, in favor of the newer ones. And, uh, well, we didn't get to edit that film. But we shot a great deal of material. We shot over 30 hours worth mm -hmm. of material with a Bolex, black and white, 100-foot rolls. Yeah. Anyway, um, so since we were, weren't able to edit it together, uh, I asked permission from him to make my own films out of the material, and he could make his own yeah. films. So that soon after, uh, I made a half-hour film called Claw, yeah. which was about that subject. Mm -hmm. But now you revive it and make a whole film out of that footage. Why, why now? Right, and that was only a half-hour, and this is it's an hour. An hour, yeah. Right, because, well, why now? Uh, I made a film last year, which I actually called Dream of a City, which was also at the film festival. And um, that 
You know, I, I don't like to make the same kind of film twice in a row. Mm -hmm. So in between, I made a Talking Heads film, you know, an interview film yeah. called uh, Middle Class Money Honey, <laughs> all about people's relationship to money. And then I figured, all right, I'm going to go back to this material and see what's left. Mm -hmm. And so um, that became free time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you've been shooting this film for decades, I mean, this city for decades. Probably no one knows better how it has changed. How do you think it has changed for the better and for the worse? Well, for the better, the air quality is better. There are trees everywhere. There weren't, there's not a tree in this film. That's right. You know? Um, and now, I mean, I live on Broadway and the mall is filled, it's lush. You know, you really know it's summertime, uh, when it is summertime. And uh, so those two things have definitely improved. Mm -hmm. What's gotten worse is the traffic. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, on any day, in the middle of the day, things are blocked up. And um, the fact, which the film demonstrates, that kids don't play on the street anymore. That's true. And I attribute that to the cell phone. <laughs> I think the kids go up their houses after school and don't go down to play yeah. the way we used to. So what, first of all, what ignited this love affair between you and this city? What, why did you decide to make this kind of like the premier subject of your film? Well, you know, it's a love-hate affair, actually, <laughs> because they, you know, my, our protest against those glass boxes um, was a bad part of the city. <laughs> and it's happening now in Brooklyn, and it's happening on 57th Street in Manhattan, you know, these very tall structures vying with the Empire State, you know, and, and casting shadows on the park. So um, that... That's the hate part of New York. Mm -hmm. I really deplore it as I go down the avenue. So we got, we got about 10, 15 seconds left. You still going out in the streets shooting? No. <laughs> My last film was Canners, where I went out on the street, in which I, I um, interviewed people who collected cans and bottles for a nickel. Well, Annie, um, as I told you before, when I came to New York City, I, I almost Got you as a professor. Now I wish I did. I made the wrong decision. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's Thank been you. an honor to have you here with us. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at metrofocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.